Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something, people. Since I've moved back east, I've been eating the Philadelphia area food, and I have not yet to have a cheesesteak. I grew up eating them. Everyone's like, have you had your cheesesteak yet? I said no, but I've been eating the food. But the one thing I'm going to miss about leaving L.A. is Mexican food, because in Los Angeles, you can get Mexican food anywhere and it's cheap and it's so good and as I'm driving around Marlton, New Jersey like the mainstay Mexican place is a place called the Mexican Food Factory and to me that just sounds just like I've been there, but it just doesn't sound good. I mean, it's just funny that they call it the food factory. I'm waiting for like some guy to be sitting there just making tortillas up front. But anyway, I will try it again, and I'll report back to you, and I will get that cheesesteak. So anyway, we have a, we have a great show today. Uh, my gentleman, my guest, is an uh, excellent guitarist. Uh, I sent him a message a while ago, and we finally got in touch. And my guest is James Stevenson. How you doing, James? I'm good, Steve. How's it going? Good. So so now you're, you're over in London, right? I am. So I'm five hours in front. Yeah, so it's weird because when I lived in L.A., it would have been impossible to interview you because it would have been like eight hours. <laughs> you know, yeah, how... I do interviews. I mean, I spend a lot of my life in L.A., so I know L.A. almost as well as I know London. But, yeah, I get out there a lot. But I've done – you can do it with the eight-hour difference. It still kind of works, you know. So so now, yeah, well, you're coming You're coming over here soon on the, uh, the Vans tour, right? Yeah, yeah, with the alarm. Yeah, because you're actually playing at a, a – down the, uh, 10 miles from me, you're playing uh, You're playing in Camden, New Jersey. I was checking out the tour schedule, so you'll be uh, out there. But, so, okay, so now you've been playing guitar for a long time, and I know you, you've been, I mean, it's great. Now, when did you start playing guitar? When did you find an interest in music, and were you influenced by the English music scene? And, you know, I know you were around with the punk scene. When did you decide to start playing guitar, and how did your whole career start to envelop? Uh, two reasons. Uh, one of them was my best buddy at school, a guy called Noel. He bought when we, I was about thirteen. He bought and um, he bought an electric guitar, and he said to me, "You got to get one, you know, so that we can be in a band together." And um, and then within a week or so, I saw David Bowie with Mick Ronson on a TV show here called Top of the Pops, and that just changed my life. And I thought that's what I want to do. And so me and my friend Noel, we went to the guitar store i paid like 20 bucks for some terrible guitar and uh you know we started messing about in my mother's garage you know now when you say it changed your life what was the impact it had on you what i mean what was so amazing because you'd heard different music was it just bowie's stage persona or what changed that you just said wow it's the whole vibe and the whole attitude i mean the glam rock thing i think t-rex had already had a hit, and I loved it all, and Gary Glitter and all those people, and Slade. Uh, but there was something about Bowie, his charisma, the quality of the song, Starman, on its own. And then at the end, he went over and kissed Mick Ronson, and then all us school kids were like, did you see those two guys kissing on top of the pops? And it was like, and there were the, the people who were disgusted by it, and the people like me and some of my friends who just thought it was amazing, you know. I mean, it was, it was such a big impact. I mean, I think that TV show had like 20 million viewers, out of a population of 60 million. And, you know, since then, obviously, the music industry has changed out of all recognition. You there? Yeah. Okay. So so now, so you, you sat there, you watch it, you get your guitars. Now, what music did you guys want to start playing at that age? I mean, you're young. What, what, you know, what do you start learning to play? Well, we learned, you know, covers. You know, and we, we, like, my mother had this garage in her place that she didn't use, and we put, like, 
polystyrene tiles around it to try and soundproof it and another buddy of mine played drums and we probably sounded terrible and I think we got complaints from the neighbours but we were like 13, 14 years old and uh, we just played covers and stuff and then we tried to create our own uh, songs um, and then as a couple of years went by I got into, then I got a little bit older I started playing with some more serious musicians who I was at school with one guy, a guy called Henry Badovsky um, He's like the closest thing I ever met to a genuine musical genius. You can Google him, and he's still got, even though he only made one record for A&M Records like 30 years ago, um, he still has a cult following. And uh, so I started playing with him, and then the punk thing happened, and then I just thought, wow, this is it. I mean, I was already listening to, you know, Lou Reed, the New York Dolls, television, and uh, I just thought, this is great, and you don't have to be, you know, incredibly a technical guitar wizard um, I mean, in fact, the punk thing stood for the exact opposite, and it meant anyone could like get in a band. And I was still at school, uh, and I answered an advertisement in a magazine, in fact, a music paper called Melody Maker, and it just said something like, punk rock group need guitarist. Um, and I went to this kind of, this rehearsal room in, a, 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 in West Kensington in London, walked down the stairs into this rehearsal room, and it was the band Chelsea. Um, and I was 17, and I didn't expect to get the gig and i did and i mean my life changed forever after that what was the punk scene like you know i've talked to guitarists and people in bands who were in the metal scene when it was the sunset boulevard was you know blowing up and it was just crazy what was it like because that was the you know what was the punk scene like when you joined this band chelsea i mean was it just full-on just anarchy like you see in the movies i mean what was the punk scene like well the first thing is it was really dangerous if you, if you wore a leather jacket on the street, because the media in this country had fueled this fire about, you know, between this, these, other, this other, these other cult kind of teenagers called Teddy Boys, who would around in the 50s, um, and they, was, they was, would suddenly reappeared, and the media had fanned this fire to say that we were at war with each other. And also, because of the whole punk thing and, you know, the Sex Pistols on the Bill Grundy show that shocked everyone because they swore on live TV, um, yeah, everyone wanted to fight you. So you'd be walking down the street, and at late at night, I might get dropped off after a gig, and, you know, sometimes you'd hear like a car screech to a halt 50 yards away, and all the doors open, five big guys get out, and you were, like, running for your life. And I mean, and, that, and that's how it was. But the other thing was, there was so much great music, you know. And it was like, oh, it was, you know, I joined in March '77, which, you know, the punk thing had already been going for a while. And that, I mean, here in London, I think it was different from New York, and definitely different from LA. I mean, in LA, the punk thing happened later, and they had a very different, different, different concept of what it was. Um, but here, it was a dangerous thing. It took a while before it kind of got in, accepted by the mainstream. I mean, I can remember. My girlfriend going around to her place and her dad saying to me, you know, what about, you know, what about, because it was labeled as a kind of fascist movement because some people wore swastikas, but that was just for the shock value. And he's like, what about the National Front, which is a very right wing political group here in the UK? What about that? Why are you doing this? Blah, blah, blah. And I had to explain to him that the media had totally distorted what was really going on. And it took about a year until people were like, oh, okay, then, you know. Could you imagine if it came out now with the way the media is? I mean, it would be it'd be pure bedlam because it would be everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a very small, close-knit scene, even though London's a big city uh, when it first started. And then it was very short-lived. I mean, that's the other thing that people forget. By 
really by the summer of 1977, it was already over. So, you know, it was around, it was about a year before it all got, you know, kind of, you know, totally bastardized by big, you know, mainstream stores bringing out the fashions and stuff and, you know, loads of kind of other groups jumping on the bandwagon. Um, so I would say by August, September 1977, it was already over here in London. So now where do you go from there? Because you are, your band, I mean, were you, was your band still playing or was there a, was there a scene for you to play? Yeah, I was with this band Chelsea and, you know, we were signed to Mars Copeland's, one of Mars Copeland's labels, Stuart Copeland from the police's brother. And uh, we actually did a whole uh, UK tour with the police opening for us. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so, you know, and lots of <laughs> lots of bands that went on to do greater things opened for Chelsea. But I kind of stuck it out with Chelsea for about three years. And then one day I was, like, sitting in the minivan just going to some gig, and I was just like, what am I doing with my life, you know, playing with 100 people a night? And um, I actually applied to go to, I'd scraped through some exams when I'd been at school and I applied to go to a, a university to about, and I actually got offered a couple of places. Um, and then, but literally about a month after that, Tony James from Generation X rang me up and asked me if I wanted to join Generation X with Billy Idol. So that scuppered my academic career right there. Now, did you think that, you know, dancing with, did you think Generation X would blow up like they did? Uh, well, it was Billy I really. I mean, I was only in the band for six months at the end, and then Billy left for a solo career uh, in New York, and, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But um, And then he re-released Dancing With Myself, which was at the same recording, which was a Generation X song. He re released that as a Billy Idol record. And uh, you know what? He Billy had so much natural charisma. I mean, I can remember the first time I walked into a rehearsal room with him, uh, to audition for the band and he just had like this old faded denim jacket on and these old jeans but he just had a wealth of natural charisma and he still has you know and it was obvious he was always going to do do well so you're playing that and you know you by this time you know this is what you want to do so you don't go back to university say that i never went back to new york city no you never went back to university oh i never went no, Generation X basically scuppered my academic career. Okay. So, on them. so where do you go after uh, Generation X? I mean, I know you, as a musician, do you have downtime or do you automatically... I know you, oh, play you, with always have that, you always have downtime. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, the older I get now, the busier I get. It's insane. I'm in like five different bands and I'm juggling all the time. But um, after, I've always been very lucky in that when one thing kind of fell apart or came to an end something else always cropped up so like the minute billy in fact before he'd even left for new york uh this friend of mine called calvin hayes who was a big record producer here in england's son a guy called mickey most uh calvin rang me and said his dad had just signed this hot new young girl singer and would i be in the video uh and that because they wanted to have a band to cut to in the video and uh yeah that was kim wilde so i did like a year with Kim as, you know, a professional mimer. What was, that, that was a lot of fun. What was the video? I mean, the video process now is so much more advanced. What was the video? Because I remember, we all remember the video kids in America. I mean, you know, if you're over a certain age, what was it like shooting a video back then? And what was it like? Because videos had such a huge, huge impact at that time. Massive. I mean, a good video would give you a hit record. And it became even more true 
like five years later in the sort of mid to late 80s when MTV was massively important. I mean, MTV could break a band, which good luck to them breaking a band now. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, making a video, it, I mean, first of all, it was a huge process with a massive budget. I mean, I've got a solo album just come out and I've done two quite good videos for it, which the budgets for each one were like 500 bucks. And I just got, and the quality is fine. You just, because of the technology with the cameras. But in those days, you know, it was in a proper studio. You had a huge crew. The budget was probably a hundred grand. So, it, I mean, it was, a, and people spent the money because then you would go on to sell thousands of records or millions of records, which that, of course, just does not happen anymore. So, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a massive production making a, you know, making a, a video for if the label believed that you had a hit they would spend a fortune on a decent video. Now, as you're playing in these different bands, are you developing your guitar style? I mean, how, how are you developing as a guitarist? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, you technically, you do progress and get a bit better and listen to different people. Um, I mean, if I listen to what I was doing when I first joined Chelsea, at, you know, in 1977, when I was like 17 years old, uh, and so then what I was doing, I started doing session stuff with Mickey Most and I started listening to other guitarists, people like Adrian Ballou, you know, Robert Fripp. And that has a, in, 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 the way you play changes all the time. Um, I mean, I listened to some of the stuff I did, you know, back then in my early 20s and some of it, I think, wow, that's actually pretty good. Um, but the way you play just changes all the time. And then later on in my career, I went, I kind of rejected those kind of avant-garde players, you know, like Fripp and... And I, I, I started going back to earlier and listening to Elmore James and people like that who, you know, lots of people don't realise what an amazing guitar player, on Robert Johnson even, what amazing guitar players they were, you know, as well as being seminal, you know, as, you know, in, the, in their, that, the form of art that they created, the music they created. Now, when you're playing with uh, Kim Wilde, did you guys ever get to America to tour or was it not really big touring group? It wasn't when I was doing it. I, I did it for like a year. And I never did a live show with Kim. I played on a few tracks on some of her on her first two albums, and I was what well, that was one of the reasons I stopped doing it was because I was sick of not playing live. I mean, I was really busy, and she was had like Kids in America was a hit everywhere in Europe, and uh, so after about a year, that I got fed up with that, and I actually formed a band with Glenn Matlock, who was the bass player from the Sex Pistols. Now, how did you guys meet? We met just from the London club scene, you know. I mean, I, there was a club. In fact, if you go onto YouTube and put in James Stevenson Punk Club Tour, I do like this tour of London of pointing out all the old punk clubs and where they are and what happened to them and my stories from being there. But I can remember I, the first time I met Glenn was in a club called The Marquee, which is a famous club on Wardour Street in Soho in London. And we just got on and I was playing with Kim and I said, you know, I knew who he was. And um, I said that I'd really wanted to form a band and get out and um do some shows and because i was sick of just like doing tv shows all the time where i was basically lip-syncing and uh you know i really admired the group i liked the group that glenn had after the sex pistols which is a group called rich kids and uh, i wanted to kind of do something like that and um so we kind of put that band together and uh, with a singer from a, called Steve Allen, who was in a band before that called The Original Mirrors and before that in a band called Death School. And uh, Mickey Moe signed us to Rack Records and uh, we went out and did some gigs. In fact, we opened for XTC and in, in, did the European tour with them. That was the, those were the first shows we did. 
What was it like when you finally got to get back on stage and perform live? Did you really miss it? I mean, was it that spark? I mean, as a musician, it must be a great feeling to be live. And then you're playing with this band and you guys have good energy and you're open for XTC. So, you know, you have a pretty hip crowd coming to see you. I mean, that was just a European tour or what happened? Yeah, we just, well, in fact, well, I'll answer your first question first, which is that Walking on stage and playing my guitar is my favourite thing to do. So to get back out there and the electricity and just to be in front of a live audience. I mean, the thing that is exciting is that things can go wrong as well, you know. <laughs> so you have to, you have to like, make sure, you know, you can hit a bum note and then 2,000 people think you're an arsehole, you know. So, you know, that, that kind of keeps you on your toes and keeps the electricity going, you know. But when we were on that tour with XTC... Uh, Andy Parsons, the singer, had some kind of nervous breakdown, and they they cancelled the tour halfway through. In fact, I can remember, I'm actually writing my book, which has taken me longer than I wanted it to, but we were playing in Paris, I think it was a place called the Par- Palace Theatre, and John Giddings, who was their agent, who's actually still a personal friend of mine, he's a very, very big agent here, he does the Isle of Wight Festival and all that stuff, uh, he was in this cafe next to the theatre and I could see him trying to convince Andy Parsons you know, to go on stage and do the gig and I could see Andy saying, I just can't do it. And we actually went on and did that show and XTC never did the show and that was the end of the tour. And I don't think he played live again for years after that. That's crazy. Now, so you guys just, you did the show, just you, and then that was it, the show ended. Yeah. The, the promoter went out and made an announcement. I think people could get their money back, you know. So, yeah, that was a funny time, for sure. So now, so eventually you end up joining Gene Loves Jezebel. Yeah, and that was, a, I mean, talk about nervous breakdowns. Uh, that was a, an, another situation where I think something that people don't realize is that playing in bands, it can be really stressful. And um, people have breakdowns. And I, the, the, I had the same manager as Gene Loves Jezebel. Uh, this group I was in with Glenn, and his name was Jerry Hempstead, and he said to me, well, he had this other group, Genos Jezebel, and they were starting their first American tour, and I didn't know anything about the band. I'd never heard their records, nothing, you know. Um, and he said to me, look, there's a problem with this Genos Jezebel. I've got their first American tour. It's like two months long, and the guitarist, they're having massive problems with the guitarist. I'm like, well, what's the problem? They're like, he doesn't, he's got stage fright, won't go on stage. And uh, later on, Jay told me that the first inkling he got that something was wrong was they were on their way to like the third gig in Boston, um, and they stopped at a truck stop, and Ian, the guitarist, just ran off into the woods. Wow. Uh, yeah, so, you know, he was having some major issues there, and then I went out. I can tell you, it was really, really stressful for everyone. I mean, the guys were great, and we ended up getting on, and I, obviously I ended up staying in the band for like 30 years. Um but um yeah so um basically you know we went to rehearsal this guy Ian couldn't even really play the songs or show me any. he couldn't even speak and if I asked him how you know at this tune went or what inversion of this chord he was using for this song he would just like curl up in the fetus position on the floor so you know that the only way forward was for him was to go home and uh, i did two rehearsals and then we were out on the road now you say it can be very stressful in the band what makes it stressful what are some of the combinations of things that you think would add stress to being in a band because you know as you say you know i mean i did stand-up comedy for many years on the road and you know from the outside people go it's very hard and once once we get up there as a comic or i'm sure as a musician you said there's nothing better than you walking on stage where does the stress come from i mean for him it was stage fright but what are some of the other factors of stress that may happen with a band 
I think I think it's mainly it's some people just are not cut out to go in front of an audience and perform because although you're playing an instrument, it's also you, it's a performance as well. And I think some people stage fright is usually the people that I've spoken to that have had issues where they've had to push themselves through stuff is where you know they just didn't feel comfortable being on stage anymore for whatever reason. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's stressful. Like, you can, you know, it's a very grueling schedule, especially if the band is doing well because there's, you've got promo. You know, you wake up in the morning, you're in your hotel room, you've done the gig the night before, you've probably had too much to drink, you've got a hangover, you've got to do some phone-up with some guy from some paper, you know, 100 miles, go for a gig in a month's time and, you know, at 9 a.m. because they're on a different time. And that, all that kind of stuff is stressful. But... It's, I th to, for me, I think it's something to do with that some people find it difficult and frightening to get in front of an audience, and some people naturally love it. Um, and, I mean, that's my theory. <laughs> now, when you joined Gene, as you said, you weren't familiar with their music. Now, how did you learn their music? I mean, was there a quick process? Did you have to pick up a bunch of tunes? Because you said you weren't really familiar when you got the call. And it was they were a very different group to anything I'd ever worked with before. I mean, visually, I don't know if you know what the bit, if you look at the band's first and second album, those are the two that I'm not on. Um, you know, Jay the singer had this bright red hair, which, you know, was now is nothing, but in 1985, it was a different deal. And he had like pipe cleaners in his hair and ribbons. And it was, there was a, it was androgynous, you know, they both, the twins looked like girls. Uh, and I think that was part of the appeal. And I'm, I was like, what the, f you know, I'm a punk rocker. What the hell am I doing getting into here? Um, but, uh, yeah, so um, I've lost my train of thought now. What were we talking about, Steve? Uh, about about um, the different stress that comes up. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, I think I've already covered that. But, um, yeah, just the whole thing with Gene Loves Jezebel, that was, um, you know, a whole other thing. And I can, I'm, oh, yeah, we were talking about learning the song. Right. So. Um, I, the, the, basically, their manager gave me a Walkman and a cassette of the tunes and said, listen to this the best you can on the plane. I mean, he said to me, you may have to go to G out and save this Gene of Jezebel tour. And the next day, I was on a plane to New York. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got into the rehearsal room with them and the guitarist couldn't show me anything. I We decided that I would learn like eight songs just to start with because Jay played a bit of guitar as well and he could kind of cover it. So I kind of learned these eight songs the best I could from just from listening to them because Ian, the guitarist, couldn't show me anything. And, uh, yeah, and um, off we went. And then I gradually learned more of it as we went through the tour. But I can remember the very first gig we did was at a place in Pittsburgh called The Decade Club. And they had a song of the second album called Shame, which has this riff at the front. And I, I knew the pattern to play it, but I couldn't remember the timing. And I was playing it at like half the speed it was meant to be. And then Jay just kind of walked over to me and he took over and he played it the way it was meant to be. And then the minute I heard it, you know, everything came back. So, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it does, you know, it's stressful and it does, it, 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 you know, it can take it out of you a, a bit. Now, that was, was that your first time touring America? No, I actually came, the first time I came to America was with Chelsea was in it? 1979. So, I was 19 years old. Now, what was this like touring in America at that time when you said it was a group that was so different looking? And, you know, 85, <coughs> the music scene was getting really cool around here. Did you enjoy yeah. playing in America? Did you, did you, did you, had you... Uh, 
there's a lot wrong with America, but I've always loved America. I love playing there. I come. I spend probably half my life in the USA. Um, and America at that time, listen, we were all young. We were on an adventure. We were all in our mid-20s. There were, like, loads of gorgeous girls following the band. And, you know, we just took advantage of every situation we could. And it was a crazy. It was a really crazy <laughs> time. We had a tour manager, an American tour manager called Tom Sherwood, who... Um, but halfway through the tour, said he, he couldn't take it anymore, you know, and, they, and, just, and left the tour. We had to get a replacement tour manager. Uh, it was on a very low budget, so it was like three to a room. Um, and it, it was crazy. It was pretty crazy. Marcus, the drummer, got arrested in Berkeley in San Francisco um, for, for just basically for making too much noise in the hotel. And... Uh, and then the tour manager, just before he asked to be relieved, came back into... And because his, the tour manager had gone to bail out Marcus the drummer, his room had become empty. He had his own room. So, like, three of us went and just slept in his room. Then he came back, and one of the road crew was having, like, sex with some girl in his bed. And that's when he just lost it completely, and he threw his briefcase across the room, and all, the, all these dollars came out. It was like something out of a comedy sketch. And then he, uh, he just rang the agent and said, you've got to get me off this tour. But I, to, I mean, the further I progressed with the tour, the more I started to enjoy it. Now, how long did you play with Gene Lone Sensible? Well, I still do. We've just made a new album. Right. But I mean, there's a complicated situation. I don't know if your listeners are aware, but um, Gene Lone Sensible was fronted by two twins, uh, Jay and Michael Aston, who formed the band. And they, but to cut a long story short, they fell out really badly. In we, well, Michael left the group in 1989, and then we did a reunion tour in 1997, and they fell out again really badly. And Michael formed his own band in LA and called it Gene Loves Jezebel, um, which, as far as we're concerned, has got nothing to do with the real band. Cause he just picks up who you know, pick up musicians. I mean, he flew to Argentina recently just on his own um, and did a show with a pickup band and called it Gene Loves Jezebel. So. Um, that's, you know, you can imagine what we think of that, but, um, so that, and so they, the twins, I don't think will ever repair their relationship, but they basically, we started, we carried on with Jay as usual, you know, and I mean, I've been in the band ever since, since 1985 on and off. I mean, we go through periods where there's a hiatus, but we've just made a new album, which I think is an incredible record and I'm very excited about it. I want to hear about that album because, you know, as you said, you've been with the band since 85 and, you know, you've, there's been the, you know, the rift between the brothers. So everyone's writing style and musical style must have changed. What's the difference with like this album than an album that was from years ago? How have you guys developed more as an act? Well, I think you just, you just, as you get older, your style of songwriting and your musicality, it matures um, and, and another thing that's happened that I think has actually um, changed the direction of the band. The new, I was actually going to send you a couple. Yeah, the album's not out until June the 29th. It's called Dance Underwater. But I was actually going to send you a couple of MP3s from the album so you could listen to it. But the other thing that's happened is that Pete Rizzo, the bass player, who, in my opinion, is one of the greatest bass players of his generation, he started only in the past few years, adopting a much, much more creative role and getting involved in songwriting, playing guitar. He plays some guitar on the album, which he never did in the past. Um, and But still, you know, there's a lot of Jay's songs that have a continuity and the same, the constant feel. But I would just say it's a more mature record. I don't think there's a weak song on it. 
Um, if we'd made this album in the late 80s, it would have been a monster quadruple platinum record. It's better than anything we've ever done. Now, I was going to ask, I want to know about the change in the music scene. I talked to a lot of guys who, you know, the music scene has changed. A lot of people say there won't be rock stars about this. The other day at a barbecue, well, you know, when you would buy an album, it was it was an event. Like you would you'd save your money and you would you would ride your bike up to the record store and you would sit there and go, I have you know six bucks or whatever it was back in the day, and you'd be like, you'd look at the album and you inspect it and yeah. you know make sure the covers were good. How has that? I mean, that's changed a lot as a musician who's been around. How does that make you feel at times? Well, I mean, first of all, I think there will always be rock stars and pop stars. I mean, you just have to look at people who have emerged, you know, who have massive stars in the past five years. You know, look at Harry Styles, people like that. They're big stars. Um, but the music industry, I mean, yeah, it's changed out of all recognition. And people say it's because of digital technology, but it's not really. It's because it's the Internet that, you know, and you can't you cannot turn back the clock. I mean, that's something I've. And it makes me, you know, it kind of makes me feel sad. I mean, I've got a son who's grown up. He's 25 years old. But um, music just isn't an, such an important part of his life as it was. I mean, it was my life. And I identify with you completely about going to the record store, getting to know the guy behind the counter. And he would say to you, have you checked this out? And you'd go and put some headphones on. And he'd play you like the new Roxy Music album or something. And it was, it was just, and then you'd buy it and look at it and look through all the credits on the bus on the way home and then play it relentlessly for days on end. Um, and kids just are not the same. You know, it's, it's not, they don't follow bands in, in the same. I mean, you could argue it was obsessive the way I'm sure we all were, our generation. Um, and I think that just kids today is not quite such an important part of their lives. Um, and I think a lot of that is to do with it's just so accessible. And also because it's so saturated. I mean, everybody, you can make an album in your bedroom and thousands of people are doing it. And kids can't be bothered to wade through all the shit to try and find what's good. I mean, this is something that occurred to me when I was on the road with the cult um, in 2013, 2014. There were about three or four bands that opened for the cult who were absolutely incredible. And I just thought, that's such a shame no one's ever going to hear these guys. Whereas back in the day, you know, they would have probably got heard. They probably would have got signed. I mean, there was a lot wrong with how it used to be as well but i think it was definitely better than it is today well it's funny you say that about the opening bands i still remember at the spectrum in philadelphia seeing def leppard the scorpions and ted nugent and def leppard only had one uh album on through the night but they yeah. they just when we went to me and my buddy went to see him they just kicked ass and i went and bought the album because it was one of those yeah. things you saw the band and you went I mean, we never knew they'd become as big as they did, but you saw it and you're like, you know, yeah, the Scorpions are good, but I was like, I want to buy that album. And it's true. You know, you go see a supporting act and people would buy albums then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, something that's changed. I mean, I can remember going to a Roxy Music concert in London and on their merch stand, they had a new album just come out and all they were selling were T-shirts. They weren't selling the album. And I was like, so I said to the woman who was sending it, I said, why aren't you sending a new album? She said, oh, because this isn't a chart return. You know, it doesn't get, you know, entered into the chart position. So we want people to go and buy it in the shops. You know, and that is something that today would never happen. Right. 
So now you've been you've been with Gene Lumps Jezebel, you know, for all this time. Now, when you took their breaks, I know you and you played for the Colt. How did that end up happening? I know you, you, you and what was it like touring with them because they were they're a very big band. How did your whole relationship with the Colt start? And how long have you played with them? Uh well, I mean, I knew Billy Duffy from. I first met Billy Duffy, a friend of mine called Mick Rossi, who was the guitarist from a Manchester punk band called Slaughter and the Dogs. Um, he dragged Billy down to London and said, "If you don't come down to London, you're never going to you're never going to be successful." So Billy kind of came to London, and this was a probably '81 when I was playing with Kim Wilde. So I'd already played with, you know, I've done Chelsea, I've done Generation X. I was like, to you know, I'm a couple of years older than Billy, so I was I was like this successful guitarist when he first met me. I think he was like a bit in awe of me. Um, and then obviously, then later on in life, he became my boss. But that's just the way things go. But uh, yeah, so I met Billy very, very early on. And then he got into a band called Theatre of Hate. And then we were kind of friends. And, you know, to be honest, I go back 35 years with Billy. And whenever there's, you know, a few times, like I played with the cult in 94, 95. Um, and in fact, it cost me my first marriage. And then I did it again in 2013, 2014. And, you know, it just happens whenever I'm in L.A., I always see, in fact, we ride motorbikes together when I'm in town. And, uh, you know, when I heard that Mike Dimkich, who was their rhythm guitarist, you know, previous to 2013, had left the band or something, I just texted Billy and said, look, I'm up. If you want a guitar, rhythm guitarist, I'm up for it. And he just texted me back practically straight away and said, are you available for these dates and can you do it for this much money? For which I, to which I said, yes. So now when you play with them, you had to go and learn all the songs. I mean, how long, what's the process to learn? I mean, you play with them earlier, but they had more music since then. What's the process, like, you know, now, like you said, when, in the beginning, you know, Gene Loves Jezebel, they gave you a Walkman and you had to learn. What's the process now when you sit there? Do you, do you just know music by ear that you can pick it up really quick? Or how do you yeah, learn? Well, I've got everything on iTunes, you know. I mean, that's the other thing. If I need to learn a set and need to learn some band songs, I just, instead of going, in the old days, I might have gone out and bought CD. Now I just look on YouTube. But, um, yeah, every band is different. I mean, Ian and Billy from The Cull don't like rehearsing. So Billy said, sent me an email. He said, this is going to be the set. And they expect you to turn up in, they have like two days rehearsals before the tour, and they expect you to know it backwards. And, um so I just sat at home and learned it at home, you know, off iTunes and just playing along and just by ear. But, you know, the cult songs, they're, they're not as you think, they're just very straightforward, but some of them are more deceptive than you think. There's one song, we were doing the Electric album in its entirety, and there's one track, it's the last track on the album, called Memphis Hip Shake. And when I first put it on, I thought, I'm never, ever going to get my head around this song. I mean, it just doesn't seem to have any form. There doesn't seem to be a chorus. It just goes from the beginning to the end and everything's different. And But in the end, it became my favourite song to play. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, I was out in Los Angeles. I went down. I've never met John Tempesta, the drummer before, and or Chris Wise, who's the, you know, they're an amazing rhythm section. Chris isn't playing with them anymore. And uh, I went down there and sort of, you know, a couple of hours before Billy and Ian, ran through the set, and um, Billy and Ian turned up, ran through it again, did a bit more the next day, then off first gig. Now, what were the, what size venues were you playing? And what size venue do you personally like playing? Do you like playing more intimate or a bigger venue? And what's the biggest crowd you've played in front of? The biggest crowd I've ever played in front of was when Gene Loves Jezebel 
opened for David Bowie, uh, Milton Keynes Bowl, which is 60,000 capacity, um, in 1990 or 91, I think that was. We did two nights. That was amazing because I'm a huge Bowie fan anyway. Um, I can I like intimate gigs as long as it's not too cramped on stage. What we were doing with the cult, we were playing sort of 1,500, 2,000 capacity, so they can be still kind of intimate, um, and yeah, it's big enough for you to, like to feel the audience. You know, sometimes if you're in a small club, and I love very small club gigs, but when they're really full, it can be so. I mean, I've played gigs where it's like someone threw a jug of water over my guitar. You know, so, it can, <laughs> so that can make it kind of a little bit, you know, more challenging. Um, but you know, like I said, anything. I mean, I'm not so mad about playing festivals because. Somehow, especially if you go on during the daylight, um, because I think it's harder to get a rapport and a vibe going with the crowd. But, you know, like I said before, my favourite thing to do is walk on stage and play my guitar. So, Now, what was it like? Oh, I mean, it must have been amazing when you got to open for Bowie. I mean, as you said, that, that he's who was, you know, when you saw him and that changed your life. I mean, was it, were you in awe? Did you meet him? And were you just like, holy crap, I'm opening for Bowie? I never, ever met him. But I did think that. Um and uh, it was amazing to do, you know, to just to play, to open him, and then to be able to watch the, watch the show as well, you know, without having to pay. Because, um, I mean, I've seen Bowie a number of times, but it's one of the re- big, my biggest regrets in life is that I never met him. And, um, you know, obviously I've got been working in this band called Holy Holy recently with Tony Visconti. And um, I've got a feeling that if Bowie had still been alive, that Tony might have got me down to play on a Bowie record. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's kind of very disappointing. I'm not saying, you know, that's for sure. But I just, I've done quite a few sessions for Tony and um, love working with him. He's an incredibly talented guy. Um, So, yeah, never met David. And uh, that's something that now I never will be able to do. So it kind of makes me sad. I'm sure it does. Now, 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 after the cult, then you ended up you ended up joining the Alarm. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, God, it seems like <laughs> my career is just from one thing to the next. Yeah, you know, I never saw the original Alarm. Um, I gave Dave Sharp, the original guitarist, a lift home from the Marquee Club in my car when he was drunk once, uh, but that was about <laughs> as close as I've been. And Billy Duffy and Mike Peters, the singer, had been they'd. They'd done a record together and called this, named this band Color Sound. Um, and they made this record, but Mike, I think, was going on the road to promote his solo album, which was called Rise. And I think he wanted Billy to do it. But I think Billy was too busy or didn't want to do it for whatever reason. So Billy suggested to Mike that he met me. And uh, I met up with Mike. And, you know, I've, well, I've been playing with him ever since. Now, it's, I mean, you must really look at it back and say you've played with some i mean great you play with great bands i mean it just it, it says something that you know you but you seem you have to know you have to learn so many damn songs that's what that amazes me about you know no, guys people, play. people often say that to me and you know at any given moment in time i have like five different sets going around in my brain now now do you play you know simultaneously with these guys ever i mean how does that work or do you just have a certain oh my god loads of times <laughs> I mean, not an ex- yeah. I mean, I've done a gig. I mean, for for example, this June, I'm on tour right now with the Alarm. Um, next week, I'm going to Europe with Genos Jezebel. We're opening for the Mission UK, um, and then I come back. I have a gig with Chelsea because I still play in Chelsea sometimes, and then I have and the Isle of Wight Festival with the Alarm. So 
and then I'm doing a London gig with Chelsea on, on with Gene Loves Jezebel on June the 26th. So, yeah, I'm always, always doing, you know, switching from one thing to the next. And um, I don't know if that's any particular talent that I've got, but, you know, it's just that that's what I've always done. So, you know, I don't find it, you know, too difficult, thankfully. Now, your solo career, what have you done solely? Um, well, I made my first solo album about three, it came out about three years ago, and I'm really proud of it. Um, it took me a long time to do it uh, or to pluck up the courage to do it because I'm not a natural singer. You know, I'm a guitar, I mean, people said to me, well, you know, you could get guest singers in and I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to sing my own record. Um, and just about four years ago, I decided I was going to do it. I had the songs and I thought if I don't make this album, that I've got all these songs and no one's ever going to hear these songs. So um, the first thing I did was I actually rang up Pete Walsh, the producer, who's a friend of mine. And he was living in Germany at the time. And um, I said to him that I was thinking of making my own record. And when I started recording it, could I send him like little clips for, so he could give me some feedback and tell me what he thought? And he just said to me, James, I'm producing your record. and I wouldn't let you do it with anyone else. So as soon as I knew I had Pete on board, like he's done, I mean, he's made four Genius Jezebel albums, Simple Minds, Scott Walker. He's, I mean, he's a, just a, it's like working with Michelangelo, you know, he's incredible. Um, when I knew I had him on board, I knew that, you know, even if my voice sucked and whatever any every, people thought of the songs, I knew that sonically it would sound great. Um, and then, you know, we started working on it. We did it at a place down in Henley, Henley called The Dog House, which belongs to Barrymore Barlow, who's the drummer from Jethro Tull. And, uh, you know, we did it, we did it in two weeks. I, when it came out, I just, I mean, I still listen to it. I, I may, maybe I'm deluded and well, I don't want to sound arrogant, but, you know, I really love my own record. Um, and I have actually done, well, I've only ever done two gigs, proper gigs with a full band to, you know, support that record. Um, because I need a big band. I mean, there's a lot of girl backing singers on the album. So I, when I go out, I have a seven piece band, which can, you know, just the economics of that can be expensive. Um, but I did a gig here in London about, well, it's probably about 18 months ago now. Um, and the Alarm also hold an event called The Gathering uh, every year. And I did a short set at that the year, about the year before last, I think. So, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I, I want to make another record. But, I mean, I did it properly in a proper studio with a proper producer. And I think I think you do get much more sonically out of it if you do it that way. So, but, the, the you know, the... The problem with it is it's it's expensive, right. so you know. So I'm waiting until I can basically until I can afford to make another one. <laughs> now you know you've played with so many different bands. Yeah. When you did your solo record, what was where did you find your writing from, and what was your? I mean, what kind of music would you say it is? You know, you've had your different influences. You know, Bowie. Then you had your different guitar guitar influences. You know, if it was Adrian Blue or Robert Johnson. When you sit there and you're sitting down, you're going, okay, I'm going to do this solo album you said it took you for a while to make so i'm sure your writing style may have changed in those times where do you start and decide what songs are going to be on it and what is the sound like on it well well the first thing that i decided was i knew there were songs that i'd written that i liked and it, i mean a couple of the songs were actually chord sequences and just the music that i originally wrote for gene loves jezebel there's a track on called on the on my album called come on people uh, which originally I wrote the music for Gene Loves Jezebel and Jay kind of never finished the tune or the lyrics. So I thought, I'm, I really love that song, so I'm going to finish it and that's going to go on my album. And I went back through, 
you know, if any musician, they have think ideas tapes, you know, or, you know, stuff, you know, on their iPhone where full of just ideas that you might have when you're just walking down the street. So I just went through everything that I'd done over the past 15 years on all kinds of different formats. And I decided which songs I wanted to put on the album. Um, there's another track uh, called Naturally Wired, uh, which is on my album, which was actually originally recorded for the Genos Jezebel album called Seven. But Michael sang it, so when that that whole thing erupted between the twins, that track got dropped from the album, um, and I totally rewrote the tune and rewrote the lyrics and just basically kept my riff from that song, my guitar riff. So, you know, there's lots of different ways that, you know, things, you know, just ideas that you've had. I mean, I went through probably, God, at least 100, 150 different ideas and decided which ones I could finish, which ones would be good and which ones I wanted to do. And, you know, people, a lot of people, including Pete Walsh, was, you know, they said to me when they heard the demos, he said, you know, I thought you were going to make a punk album or a rock album, but um, it's actually quite a laid back it's quite mellow i mean when i was growing up as well as the punk thing i listened to a lot of motown and one of my favorite guitar players and in fact one of my favorite songwriters is a guy called johnny guitar watson if you know who that is um so i was kind of as well as punk i've been influenced by all that kind of black soul stuff you know i listened to marvin gay all and so i think and i think some of that has so it's a combination of that and rock and that's kind of fused together and i think you know, and that's just made my what's made my album sound the way it sounds. Now, what was your feeling when you got it done? I mean, you said you're a fan of it. Was it just a feeling of pride, or then you also sit there and go, "I hope people like it." I mean, because it is it's it's solo, it's bearing your soul. What, I mean, yeah. what went through your mind when you finally got that done? Were you like, and you said you're a fan, so that's great. But when it first got done, were you like, "Crap, what, what, this better be good"? Yeah, and I was like, I no, I thought. Well, I thought I think this record sounds great. When and then and then once you've made a record you're proud of, you want as many people to hear it as possible. So, but you know, these days, I mean, I've got a deal for it on Australia, um, and in fact, it got to number six in the download charts in Australia of all places. But um, you have to do a lot of the work yourself, and it's much harder. I mean, I think I've sold about a thousand copy. In fact, I'm just about to do the second run. So. You know, I've probably sold about a thousand copies um, of my CD. So, I mean, they're very small numbers compared to, you know, I mean, Gene Loves Jezebel back in the day. If we sold a quarter of a million albums, that was a failure. Right. So, um, but yeah, no, I was very, very proud of it. I did as much as I could to support it, and I want people to hear it. And you know, I, I, I still like it, and I still, you know, if you come to any gig I'm playing at, it'll be for sale on the merch stand. Now, how did you decide in what order the tracks would be? And on for the artwork, were you involved in that? Because as you said, we both know how it used to be looking at an album. And you, you remember great side ones and great side twos. You know, I still remember I went crazy because I was, grew up in New Jersey. I was a big Springsteen fan. And when, you know, Born to Run came out on album, oh, I got the cassette at the library and they switched two songs. And I was like, what the hell? Because for time constraints, how did you decide what order they would all go in? And did you have input on the artwork and stuff like that? Yeah, totally. Um, and bands do now. I mean, even back in the day, Genos Jezebel, I mean, the twins were massively involved uh, in artwork. If you look at the first album, which is called Promise, 
Um, it's got this, I mean, kind of, it's got their drawings of them both that I think Jay did with like splat, and it's it's a brilliant sleeve. And I think Jay and Michael did that themselves. Um, but uh, yeah, with, I mean, with and running order is always difficult, and you try a few different variants, and then until you come and you think, yeah, this works, this track follows this. Same with the new Genos Jezebel album. I mean, it, with my solo album, the choice was really because it was just me. It was. I, I could decide myself, although I did involve Pete Walsh. And, um, but with Genos Jezebel, me, Jay, and Pete Rizzo, the bass player, you know, we went through all kinds of... I mean, there's a track on the album called Cry For You One Day, which I thought was going to be a really good opener, and Jay's like, no, no, no. And in the end, you know, you throw things back and forth, and you come up with something that you, works for everyone, because everyone has their own concept of what a good running order is. Um, and the same, you know, with the artwork, I mean... When I, I played with, have you ever heard of a New York singer-songwriter called Willie Nile? Yes. Okay, I he, I know Willie because he supported the Alarm acoustically, and I'm a big fan. And when his guitarist, he's got an amazing guitar player called Matt Hogan, but I think for some reason Matt couldn't do a couple of his British tours, and so Willie asked me if I'd play guitar for him, which was an absolute honour because he's incredible. Um, but his girlfriend, Christina, is a photographer, and she... Taken a few photographs of me, which I really liked, and the one that's on my solo album cover, she took that, and um, I just knew that I wanted that to be the front sleeve. And a guy called Carl Parsons, who's a buddy, and he's actually a friend of Mike Peters's from the Alarm. He does artwork for all of us, you know, the Alarm, me, Smiley, the drummer in the Alarm, and he does a solo album, and he will not accept payment. Um, and he just, I sent him that photo and he treated it and I don't know if he's, but it's got this really cool kind of blue and it looks like it's kind of 3D. Um, and so, so he created the artwork, but I chose the photos and the ones inside and, you know, what the track listing and then all the credits on the inside. Um, so, but I think bands have always been very involved in that stuff because, you know, most musicians, let's face it, are egomaniacs and they want, um, (laughs) They want, they, want, they want to be in charge of all that stuff, you know. So I got to ask you, I was going to see your band. I think that's when I sent you that message a year ago. Uh, the International uh, Swingers. How, how did you guys get together? And I think, was it used to play at Maui Sugar Shack, I think? We've played there like three times. Yeah. I, cause I, cool I saw but pictures like... People would post on Facebook. I know some people who went to see it. This girl, Diana Levinson, would go see you guys, and she'd always post pictures of you guys. How did that band get together? That was Gary Twin, who is the singer. He was in a band who's a very, very old friend of mine. In fact, he's a really, really good friend of my wife's. But he had, he was in a band, and he's British, but he was spent some time in his teenage years in Australia. And he was in a band there called Supernaut, and they had a monster hit back in the day called I Like It Both Ways. And he had this promoter out there, and he used to go out there once a year, you know, for 20 years, and just, like, do, go out with some band, and, like, I think, and do Supernaut songs and stuff, and sometimes he would do it with Supernaut themselves. But the promoter said to him, listen, this is all getting a bit boring, you know, we've been doing this every year for 20 years or so. Why don't you start a new band? You know, lots of people who are in bands, you know, speak to some friends of yours and then come out and do a cover set from the songs of all the bands that, that, you know, your buddies and you have been in. So that's when he rang, he got in touch with me, Glenn Matlock and Clem Burke, the drummer from Blondie. 
and uh, put the idea for it to us, and we were like, yeah, well, but, you know, free trip to Australia, that sounds good. Um, so we got together in LA and rehearsed, really enjoyed it, um, went off and uh, and we toured in Australia, that was in 2012, I think, and then we started slowly, you know, writing our own material, and uh, we came up with our own album, which we recorded in Los Angeles, actually in Dave Grohl's studio, 606, in northwest Los Angeles, in Northridge. Now, what's it like when you play with those guys? Is it just is it just fun? I mean, because you're all you're all you know you have your day jobs, as we should say. You play in all different bands. I mean, it yeah. just it just must be a fun time. And then once again, you had to learn more songs. Well, yeah, but well, yeah, that's true. But they were all you know they were all fun to play, and you know we did dancing with myself and Jealous, the Gene Loves Jezebel song when we first started, so I already knew those songs, and, um, you know, learning Call Me by Blondie and stuff like that, it's like, they, you know, that, that's just stuff that you should know anyway, um, and playing with Clem, you know, I mean, I've known Clem a long, long time, but this is the first time we've ever really played together, and, uh, you know, he's a really, really is an incredible drummer, um, and uh, so, yeah, it's a really a, a fun time to when we play that band, but, yeah, obviously everyone's really busy, Clem seems to be on the road with Blondie non-stop, um, so, you know, that's how that is. That's just the way it is. And when, you know, we've all got downtime, then we can get together and, you know, go, and go out and do International Swingers gigs. Now, we recorded, a, you know, with our, the International Swingers album. If we'd have like, had a massively successful record, uh, I think it's a great album. But if we would had a really big record and had a couple of hits off it, then that might change things, I think. But what, what right now, while it's at the level it's at, um, you know, we, ha we can only do it while, the, you know, while we all have downtime because the rest of the time we have to get out there and earn a living you know now how often do you come did you go to LA it's funny because I just moved a month ago so I'm saying did you come to LA but uh, how long I mean how long was that and do you do you have a residence over in LA also I have a crash pad in LA yeah and now what do you like about LA I mean what's you know do you what, what's your favorite things about LA I just think you can you can hide away in LA like, you know, in, and, they, and they, you get left in peace. I mean, you can get involved in what's going on if you want to. And, the, you know, as you know, in L.A., how long did you live there for? I lived there for 15 years. Oh, wow. What, all over the place? Uh, no, I lived in Burbank almost for, I, I lived in Westwood for a year and Hollywood for a year. Then I lived in Burbank for 13 years. Wow. Cause my place is in North Hollywood. Okay. Uh, so right next door. But, um, yeah, so when I first started going to LA, which was really with Gene Loves Jezebel, I mean, we had a lot of K Rock. The, right. You know, they basically broke Gene Loves Jezebel, and then MTV helped later on. But when I went there in the 80s, I was there a lot recording and doing stuff with Gene Loves I didn't really like it. But as I got older, you know, just stupid things. Like in London, you can't even, it's like New York, you cannot even use your car. Forget it. There's no point in having one. But in LA, you can. Well, not so much West Hollywood, but anywhere else you can park your car. If you go over on the meter by 30 minutes, you probably won't get a ticket. Just stuff like there's not cameras everywhere like there are in London. Like, you know, picking up on every little thing you do. Um, in fact, there's a song called Go Mister on my album about that very thing, you know. Um, so I just feel that you can kind of kick back a little bit in Los Angeles. You know, you can get involved and see people if you want to. In L.A., Really, it kind of goes on in people's houses. You know, it's, there's no, like, center. Um, so, yeah, I've grown to really love being there over the years. And then you've got the weather, of course. Yeah. And, you know, what you were saying about the Mexican food. 
Although, you know, don't eat a big Mexican meal before you're about to do a gig. But, you know, so, yeah, yeah, I like it there. I probably spend four months a year in Los Angeles. Now, when you come back, go back again, will you play gigs with the International Swingers if you can all get together? If we can, but we haven't. I've got, well, I know that Clem's out with Blondie and he's really busy. And I'm starting at this alarm tour in on the East Coast. Well, the New Jersey, which is, it's not Trenton, is it? It's somewhere Camden. else. It's Camden. Camden, yeah, that's the first show that we're doing on the 7th of July. And then we're doing three weeks on the Warped Tour. And then we're doing, we do like a month on our own. And a lot of that is, well, there's like a week's worth of shows around LA. Um, but I'm too, you know, I'm, I'm on tour and Clem will be. So I don't really know what usually happens with the international swingers because I'm the only one. Glenn Matlock isn't doing it anymore, unfortunately. He decided he didn't want to play bass anymore and wanted to be a singer. Um, so we've got this replacement bass player called John Carlucci, who's fantastic. So and they're all based in L.A. and I'm in London. So usually what happens, if I know I'm going to be in L.A., I'll ring up Gary and say, hey, Gary, I'm going to be in L.A. for two weeks in six weeks' time. Can we do some swingers shows? And then he'll just book a few shows and we'll just do them for fun. So it's usually, we're usually only playing in Southern California, you know, which is, we've only ever done one gig outside the USA, and that was in London in 2013. Um so, yeah, it's all about time constraints, really, and just not being able to fit everything in. Now, is there another, uh, are you working on a new solo album, or is that something, you know... I'm just writing the songs. Um, I know what it's going to be called, and I know what a lot of it is going to be about. And I've written the title track, but that's about as far as I've got. <laughs> is it? Does it get frustrating? When you sit there, because you know you want to put them together, but it gets frustrating sometimes. If you if you do get a writer's block at all, does that drive you a little crazy, or because you have the outlet of playing elsewhere, you can get over that? Well, yeah, no, I've never really had a block like that because what I I mean, especially with Gina's Jezebel um, and with the international swings as well, um, I've always how I've worked is I've always supplied like a guitar riff. And then the singer has put a tune, you know, that's happened a lot with Gene Loves Jezebel. With Jealous, that song was written like that. And there's a song called Honey's Room on the International Swingers album. That is, it's a riff that I had that I gave to the singer, and then they put words and a tune on top, and it came out great. Um, so I've got, I mean, I've got enough material that I could easily um, go, you know, like fine-tune some stuff I've got. But I haven't found enough songs, and also I haven't got the budget right now or the time to get in the studio and do it. Well, I'm thinking that I might just do like a four-track EP next or something like that. That's awesome. Well, hey, man, you know what? I want to thank you for uh, coming on. I'm glad you got back to me because I'm a huge music fan and just you have such a great lineage and a history that I always love talking. I always love, you know, my guests, you know, tell me about a scene that I enjoy. And uh, now your website is jamesstevenson.info, right? That is correct. Okay, now do you tweet at all or are you, or are you a Facebook? Yeah, I'm... Twitter and Facebook, I'm just James on Guitars. James on Guitars? Yep. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, people. So go check him out. You know, go to his website. His website's very informative. It has a breakdown of who he's playing with and where, and that's always good because as we you hear the interview, he plays for a lot of people. So please go follow him, James on Guitars, on Twitter, Facebook. Follow me on uh, Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. I'm at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 600 episodes there. And you can email me, cooper 
at coopertalk.net. And uh, tell me who you want me to get on the show. And as I said, Twitter's big. Also, Instagram. It's at coopertalk1. I do a lot of promotion for the show. And I also do uh, a lot of food pictures because, as you know, when I had that health problem, I went out and I wrote a cookbook. So you can go to my website to get that cookbook, uh, stopthesalt.com, or go to Amazon and search Stop the Salt by Steve Cooper. Get it on my website because then I make more money and I'll sign it for you. And you know, Amazon's great, but shouldn't I make the money? They get, I make like twice as much. Anyway, people, please follow James. Uh, check out his music. Go to YouTube, watch some of the old videos. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.